If you'd take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23, we will continue today. While you're doing that, I want to give you a uh, a little bit of a preliminary comment on Matthew chapter 23, verse 14. Now, if you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible or a New American Standard or a Legacy Standard version, which is uh, based on the New American Standard, you will see verse 14 right where you would expect it to be. If you have a New International Version or another translation, an English Standard Version, you you won't see it. You'll see the verses skip from verse 13 to verse 15, and then you'll have a footnote. Perhaps you'll have the text of verse 14 down at the bottom. I want to explain what's happening there. In basic terms, this is a variant. Uh, This is a variant. Verse 14 was not written by Matthew. That is uh, certain that Matthew did not write it. It did not appear until the 5th century when a copyist added it. And so I want to talk about that because I want to make sure that you don't come away with this thinking that there's some question about what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. From the time of Moses until just really a few hundred years ago, Biblical manuscripts were copied by hand. Even after Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1450, hand copying continued. It took time for that technology to spread throughout the world, and especially throughout the East. Whenever something is copied by hand, variations creep in. We call them variants. They are inevitable. They are in every single handwritten copy of of ancient documents. Every single one. We have more than 5,800 handwritten copies of the New, uh, of New Testament books. Some of them are entire books. Some of them are just a, a part of a page. All of them contain variants. All of them help and identify variations in the text. Now, the inventing of the printing press did not keep errors out of the scriptures. Let me give you some examples of that. In 1631... An edition of the King James Version has the seventh commandment say, you shall commit adultery. In 1653, an edition said in 1 Corinthians 6.9, know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom. In 1716, Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery, go and sin on more. In 1944, as recently, <coughs> excuse me, as recently as 1944, women were urged to submit to their owl husbands, their owl husbands instead of their own husbands. Well, we know that Matthew 23:14 was not originally written by Matthew. It doesn't appear until the fifth century. Where does it come from? It comes from Mark 12:40 and Luke 20. 47. Jesus spoke those words. He truly did. I'll find um, Mark 12, 40, Luke 12, 47 says literally the same thing. Jesus, in the very same context of uh, pronouncing judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees, says, in verse 40, that they devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. 
Luke's gospel says the exact same thing. So my guess is that the copyist in the 5th century who was preparing the, the gospel of Matthew for someone knew that that person may never see the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Luke. He knew that Jesus had spoken about scribes and Pharisees devouring widows' houses and for appearance's sake offering long prayers and receiving greater condemnation because of that. And he wanted to give a full record of Jesus' words on this matter to that person. I believe that that's why he did that. So if I had plans to preach through Mark or Luke at some point in the future, I might just skip verse 14 of Matthew and address it when I got to it in those Gospels. But there's a lot of scripture I haven't yet preached, and I don't know that I will ever preach through Mark or Luke over the remainder of my life. So we'll look at it today. So the reminder is Jesus actually did speak these words. He spoke these words on that day. He spoke these words in this context. Matthew chose, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not to include them. Mark and Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to include them. Right? That's the preliminary. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is perfect and sure and right and pure. We ask that you would restore our souls today, give us wisdom, cause our hearts to rejoice, and enlighten our eyes as to your glory and to your perfections. Captivate our hearts and our minds this morning that we would know and trust Jesus with greater faithfulness and endurance. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Matthew twenty three fourteen, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. I spent some time on the word woe last week, and so I'll just quickly remind you that it is a cry of anguish or a declaration of a horror to come. It is usually used to describe eternal judgment. It is never used regarding Christians because Jesus has already satisfied the God's righteous wrath against us. Now, in Matthew 23, Jesus is not pleading with and urging scribes and Pharisees to repent of their sins. He is pronouncing eternal judgment on them. By and large, it is too late for the scribes and Pharisees of his lifetime and for the reasons that he gives in this chapter. Now, God, by his mercy, saved some Pharisees. He saved Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. After Jesus had been crucified, Nicodemus was one of two men who took Jesus' body down and buried it. Men didn't touch dead bodies, generally speaking, in the, that time. And especially Pharisees would never defile themselves with a dead body. So here's Nicodemus, the Pharisee, taking down not only the, the, the dead body, but the mutilated, mangled body of Jesus from the cross in order to bury it. I think he probably came to faith in Christ during that time. Saul of Tarsus, uh, who we bet know better as Paul the Apostle, was a Pharisee. He, he says in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, 
that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. He says in Galatians chapter 2 that he was progressing, advancing in his traditions far more than his contemporaries. So he was a super Pharisee. He was a highly committed Pharisee. And yet he was converted by the power of God, saved by the grace of God on that road to Damascus. And later on he wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, a verse that everybody should have memorized, actually. It is a trustworthy statement and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. For a Pharisee to admit that he was a sinner would be a remarkable thing. They didn't believe that they were sinners. They believed they were righteous because they followed their traditions. Paul not only admitted to being a sinner, he calls himself the worst of sinners. And so God saved Pharisees, but by and large, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were condemned to eternal judgment, to eternal torment. And Jesus explains why throughout Matthew 23. What reason does he give in verse 14? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. To devour means to greedily consume until nothing is left behind. These men were locusts, and the widows were the fields. 600 years before Christ, Yahweh said through the prophet Jeremiah, about the people of Israel, everyone is greedy for gain, and he included false prophets and derelict priests in that, and nothing had changed in 600 years. In what way did the scribes and Pharisees devour widows' houses? Well, we have at least one example in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. We read this. By the way, it it immediately follows, of course, Luke chapter 20, verse 47, where Jesus has just said that the scribes and the Pharisees devour widows' houses and for for appearance's sake make long prayers. He's just said that, and now he says this as a way of, of illustrating what he means. Luke 21, verse 1, And Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich, putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two lepta. We'll stop there for a second. A lepta was the smallest Roman coin. We would call it a penny. And some versions of the Bible might use the word penny as they translate it. I think the King James or older versions would translate it as a farthing. It was simply the smallest coin. Here's the thing, though. A dollar is the basic unit of our currency. A cent is one one one-hundredth of a dollar. A denarius was the basic currency of the Roman Empire. A lepta was one one one-hundred-and-forty-fourth of a dollar. It was worth even less than a penny. Putting it in today's currency, minimum wage, a full day's work, this woman put in about a dollar and 15 cents. And here's the point Jesus makes. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. 
For they all put in their gifts out of their abundance, but she, out of what she lacked, put in all that she had for living. This woman had nothing except a dollar and 15 cents. That's all she had to survive on. And she gave it on. She gave it all. I've heard this expressed as a sweet, wonderful story of godly generosity and blessed selflessness. It's none of that. It's a tragedy. It's an abuse. What terrible fear this, this woman endured. The scribes and the Pharisees had created a tradition that pressured and shamed her into giving everything she had for survival. What does the law of God say? Well, first, it, God never required anyone to give their last penny. He required a tithe, a tenth. Second, tithes, tithes were to be paid on what someone gained on their increase, usually crops or livestock, but also money, if money was your trade, but only on your increase. A widow without an income, a widow without crops or livestock or an income has no increase. Third, Yahweh commanded every man to give a benevolence tithe every three years for the Levites, for the sojourners, for the orphans and the widows, Deuteronomy 26, 12 says. The Levites had no land. They weren't given land when the land was divided, so they had no way of making a living. So the storehouses were, were built. God commanded that everybody, every three years, farmers and livestock owners, everybody, give a third so that Levites who had no land, could, who had no living, could have a living and could eat. Sojourners are not merchants traveling back and forth into Israel to do business. They're people traveling through Israel who would have no way of making a living and who needed to eat. Orphans and widows have no way to provide for themselves. And so they are to be provided with food. The last verse, or the last phrase of Deuteronomy 26.12 says this, that they may eat within your gates and be satisfied. And be satisfied. So this is not a dry bologna sandwich on white bread to get you by. This is a feast. This is fullness. This is completeness. God did not command poor, destitute widows to give. He commanded the people to give to them all that they needed to eat and be satisfied. But the, the people quickly turned to oppressing and abusing and neglecting widows and orphans. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi all condemned Israel for their hard-heartedness toward widows and orphans. God condemned them for it. Malachi says, or, or Yahweh says rather in Malachi 3, that Israel robbed him by refusing to bring the tithe into the storehouses. That's not a reference to money being given to the synagogue or money being given to the church. It's a reference to food being brought in for the sake of the needy. Jesus says that the widow in Luke 21.4 put in 
all that she had. She put in all that she had, but God never required that. He required the people to have storehouses that were well-maintained so that she would be able to freely take out all that she needed to be satisfied. Rather than generously and kindly and obediently providing for those who had nothing, the scribes and the, tr- and the Pharisees created traditions. And those traditions commanded this widow to bankrupt herself for the sake of achieving their kind of righteousness. And so Jesus pronounced eternal judgment on them. In our time, the scribes and Pharisees have been replaced by prosperity teachers. Kenneth Copeland is worth somewhere between $750 million and a billion dollars. Benny Hinn owns mansions and regularly spends, uh, stays in hotels that cost tens of thousands of dollars each night. These men and those like them have been enriched by people who are often the poorest of the poor and the most desperate. A few years ago, a, a journalist cornered Kenneth Copeland and confronted him about his new $30 million-plus-dollar $30 jet. Copeland giggled with delight over it like a little girl with a puppy, callously ignoring the fact that people had suffered to give him that money. See, it's one thing for the widow with with two lepta to her name to see somebody else who's starving and to think to herself, I can give what I have and they can have something. But it's another thing for that widow to give out of her poverty so that Kenneth Copeland can fuel his jet or Benny Hinn can order caviar for moon service. Those men and men like them are under the same judgment that Jesus pronounced on the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus goes on to say that the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees is multiplied by their religious disguise. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. The word pretense means a fictional story, a concealment, a disguise. They used the cloak of religion to enrich and empower themselves while they despised the very people (coughs) on whom they depended. They made long prayers to impress the people and convince them of their holiness, much like the prosperity teachers who weep and pray on television and then go count their money and dry their tears with $100 bills. And by the way, just to bring that story full circle, the Lord had mercy on Benny Hinn's nephew, Costi. A few years ago, uh, more than a few years ago now, Costi, who, who was once part of his uncle's ministry, and had traveled with him uh, and had benefited from the $10,000 a night hotel suites and the $100,000 watches and the fast cars. Costi came to true salvation in Christ and abandoned the prosperity gospel as a satanic deception. I highly recommend his book. It's called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. It's partly his testimony and it's partly an insider's view into that world. Well, the the outward show of the Pharisees is nothing more than a pleasing disguise. A few verses later, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And because they use religion as a means of concealing their sin and attracting prey, they used religion like a duck blind to lure in the unwary. They faced greater condemnation and multiplied judgment. So what is the lesson that we need to take from Jesus' condemnation of these men? One of the things Jesus does not do in this chapter is give us, with each one of these, the positive side of what God expects, of what God commands. But he doesn't need to do that because he's, he's filled the scriptures with what we should do. And he spent three years with his disciples teaching them what they should do. So what should we do? Well, we should care for widows. That care goes all the way back into the Old Testament. One of the beauties of scripture is that the entire Bible, written over 1,500 years of time, and 66 different books by more than 40 different authors on three continents by men of every imaginable walk of life remains the singular, unified, consistent word of God. As time progressed, God revealed more and more details to us without setting aside what he had already revealed. And so we don't need to begin with the New Testament. We can go all the way back in the Old Testament and see what God has commanded. The fifth commandment says this, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Yahweh, your God, gives you. Because the Ten Commandments are founded on the nature and the character of God, they always existed as a standard, even before God gave them. They were true for Adam and Eve. They will be true to the end of time. God had specifically promised to hear the cry of the sojourner and the orphan and the widow. And he threatened vengeance on those who mistreated or oppressed them. He did that just two chapters after the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 22. On the other hand, those who blessed and properly cared for the needy, for widows and orphans, would be blessed by God. He even, made, he even made caring for widows and orphans a condition upon which he would bless Israel. God's eyes were on orphans and widows. He paid close attention to their suffering. He brought blessing on those who blessed them, and he cursed those who cursed them. The first real crisis in the church takes place in Acts chapter 6. The Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What's happening there is this. The Hellenists were Jewish Christians who had been born and raised outside of Israel. The Hebrew Christians were Jewish Christians were, who had been born, uh, born and raised inside of Israel. And as food was being distributed to widows on a daily basis, the widows who were Hellenistic were being overlooked in favor of the widows who were Hebrew. I don't want to get into the, the controversy or the conflict, what was going on. I simply want to point out to you that very, very early in the life of the church, a, a consistent care for widows was being practiced. Food was being distributed. The, the controversy and the conflict in Acts, Acts chapter 6 is not what do we do with widows. 
It's how do we do it well? How do we do it consistently? How do we do it fairly and equitably? The church, of course, is not Israel and does not possess nation-sized resources. We can't create storehouses that will provide for everybody who is needy. And so, as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, which is all about what Timothy was to do as the, as the leader, as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, he includes a detailed section on caring for widows. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. It's, it's at least one sermon by itself, if not two. We're not going to cover all of that today. I just want to summarize four truths that we see in those verses, and I urge you to read them as you're able to. First, the church is to give priority to widows indeed. Widows indeed are women who are alone, regardless of the reason, who have nothing to sustain themselves, and who have no family willing to step in and help them. Some widows are widows in the literal sense. They were married and their husbands have died. Other women are widows figuratively. They never married, but they find themselves alone and destitute and in need of help. Second, the church is to give priority to godly women, women whose hope is fixed on God and who spend their time in prayer. And he contrasts, Paul contrasts these godly women with those who found themselves alone and then gave themselves over to indulgence, sinful indulgence. Third, the church is to give priority to motherly women. That's my summary. Paul talks about women who have served others during their lives by helping to raise children, not their own children, because they would be taking care of them, by showing hospitality to strangers, by washing the the feet of the saints that is serving other believers in humility, and being happily involved in all kinds of good works. I think it's at least possible that at that time, supporting widows was not a matter of having a fund and a bank account and giving them a weekly paycheck, but rather having a church family sort of adopt them as an adopted grandmother, as an adopted aunt. In that way, this woman would not be just be given a living, but a life and the chance to continue to serve and bless others according to her ability. But she had to be the kind of woman then coming into somebody's house who would bless it and strengthen it rather than weaken it by becoming a source of conflict. So she had to have a motherly sense. She had to be godly. She had to be truly alone without anyone to take care of her. And then fourth, the church was not to give priority to younger widows. Paul wants them to remarry, bear children, or help raise their second husband's children. Many men were widowers as well, and keep their house. Paul isn't being arbitrary here. He's nothing if not practical. He had observed in his life that when younger widows have nothing to do, they tend to become idle, they tend to become gossips, they tend to become busybodies, and some had even abandoned the faith. That's bad. That's bad for everybody concerned. And so to protect everybody concerned, younger widows needed to follow God's pattern of marriage and child-rearing, fulfilling God's design for them as women. Now let me make a couple of additional points about this. After I blow my nose. 
first, these words are given in light of the limited resources of, of the church. Again, the church doesn't possess nation-sized resources. When 10 widows showing up need, show up needing help and Timothy only has the ability to help two of them, how is he to decide who to help? Paul gives him the means of narrowing that down so that Timothy and so that we know how to, how to proceed and how to move in a way that glorifies God. Second, Scripture doesn't forbid Timothy or us from making other decisions. For instance, perhaps a widow did have children or grandchildren who had the ability to help her, but they abandoned her and refused. Certainly, Timothy should step in. Certainly, we should step in. Younger widows simply may not be in a position to remarry, and certainly we ought to step in and help. And then third, I think that this is important. Nothing in 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 16 is meant to be insulting or uncaring toward anyone. On the contrary, Paul recognizes the dangers that Christians face on a, on a constant basis because of temptation. God created men and women to put their main energies into their families. Men were to work hard to provide for their families Women were to work hard raising children and keeping the home. Men and women who become idle for any reason fall into various temptations and often abandon the faith. Paul focuses on younger widows in that regard because his topic is widows. But the best life for any man or woman is not a life of sinful indulgence, but a life of serving others according to God's design. Bringing this home, then, on a practical level, what are we to do with widows today? How are we to care for them today? The scribes and the Pharisees abused them and used them. This we must not do. We must do the opposite. So let me give you two thoughts. First, we must keep sanctification and discipleship as our priority. Widowhood is not the end of sanctification. A woman who loses her husband is not done trusting Christ or obeying him. This is simply a new season for her to learn about the faithfulness of the Lord and the joy of the Lord and to learn how to trust him. She's still to obey him as Lord. God's glory is still the priority. Jesus remains Lord and Savior. We need to remind widows in their loneliness to fix their eyes and hope on Christ. And we need to remind them in their strength to serve according to their ability. And second, we need to teach and urge families to take care of their own. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that a man who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel, worse than a barbarian. It's, those, it's, it's as though Paul says it's unthinkable that a man would not take care of his widowed mother or his grandmother. The barbarians do that. Nobody abandons them. They take care of them. We need to fulfill the spirit of the fifth commandment. Sometimes a man or woman only has the church family. The folks in that congregation need to be their family. 
And the widows and widowers in that congregation need to step up as aunts and uncles, as grandmothers and grandfathers, even if no financial help is needed. And to be honest, in our time, it's rare that anybody is absolutely poor, homeless, and destitute. It's not, un, it's not unheard of, but it's not the common thing. But even where financial help is not needed, there is still the need for loving relationships, Christian relationships, opportunities for service, and having a place at a family table and being welcome. Let's pray. Father, you adopted us in Christ. We were homeless. We were orphans. We had been abandoned. We were spiritually destitute. And you adopted us. You made us your children. You gave us a family to love and to serve. You provide the, the model for this. When we care for widows and orphans and those in need, we are simply doing what you have done for us. <coughs> Would you help us to have our eyes open for the needs that we so often miss. We, we're not aware of them, we're not experiencing them, and so we just don't think about them. Would you lift up those who are alone and grant them your grace? Would you give us the wisdom to know how, to be, how best to help men and women who are alone, those who, who are vulnerable. We thank you, Lord, for your graciousness, graciousness to us and your kindness to us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.